TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to a special edition of The Permanent Record. I'm Josh Spickler, Executive Director of Just City. We're a nonprofit criminal justice reform organization based in Memphis, Tennessee. The Permanent Record is our podcast about the criminal justice system and how we can work together to make it work better for everyone. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. She's the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School. She has been following the Nora Jackson case for several years now, and just this week, published an article in the New York Times Magazine called Guilt by Omission. In it, she explores the case that has received a lot of national attention, but more importantly, she dives deep into the culture of the Shelby County District Attorney General's office and the details behind this case. She also gives an amazing history lesson about the Brady Rule and the balance between fair trials and the burden of proof for the prosecutors. It's a fascinating read, very compelling, and I encourage all Memphians uh, to read it. Emily joins us at the OAM podcast studio via Skype today. Emily, thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, And I want to talk about the Nora Jackson case. Obviously, when did you get interested in the Nora Jackson case? How did you hear about it? Uh, What brought you to that case first? I got interested in this case a couple of years ago. I was just realizing that I actually met Nora Jackson for the first time when she was still in prison. And I think it was um, August 2015. So I think it's been a couple of years. So you can follow along. Here's a little history of the Nora Jackson trial that we're talking about. Nora Jackson was tried for the murder of her mother in February of 2009. After two weeks of trial and nine hours of deliberations, a jury found her guilty of second degree murder. Less than a week after the verdict, one of the prosecutors helping try the case, Stephen Jones, discovered a statement that he hadn't turned over to the defense. Andrew Hammock, one of Nora Jackson's friends, had given a handwritten note to the police after the murder. In it, he gave a different account of the evening in question than the one that the jury heard. After years of appeal, on August 22, 2014, the Tennessee Supreme Court unanimously overturned Nora Jackson's conviction saying it is difficult to overstate the importance of this portion of the witnesses, Mr. Hammock's testimony. They also overturned the case on the basis of Attorney General Amy Weirich's closing argument in which she pointed at Nora Jackson and asked her to tell the jury where she was. The Tennessee Supreme Court found this to be an improper comment on Ms. Jackson's Fifth Amendment right to remain silent and overturned the case for that reason as well. After remaining in jail for quite some time, Nora Jackson ultimately entered an Alfred plea, maintaining her innocence, but admitting that the state could possibly convict her again. She entered that plea to involuntary manslaughter and was released from prison last year. And I got interested in the case because I was looking around the country at prosecutors who have had issues with not disclosing evidence. And one of the prosecutors that um, came across my radar was Amy Wyrick, who is the district attorney in Shelby County, who tried the Nora Jackson case and then, um, as your listeners might know, was then elected um, district attorney in 2012. Of course, our listeners are well well aware. Um, And so why did you think that the Nora Jackson case in particular was an important story to tell? 
from this particular prosecutor in this particular community? Well, I was intrigued because in some ways it was really a typical case and in other ways it was fairly typical. So let me explain. Um, you know, most murders in Memphis, as I understand it, involve, um, you know, poor people um, in lower income communities. Often we're talking about African-Americans um, as victims and as perpetrators. This was a different kind of case. Um, this was a woman, Jennifer Jackson, or his mom, who was stabbed to death in the middle of her night in her house in a pretty um, upscale neighborhood, and she was white. And so that made it atypical for Memphis, but it also makes it the kind of case generally that is high profile. And that generates a lot of fear and anxiety among middle class people. You know, someone in the middle of the night brutally stabbed to death in her house. And that's the kind of case that prosecutors often um, across the country feel a lot of pressure to solve. So I was interested in that part of it. And then the part that was more typical was the dispute over the disclosure of evidence at Nora's trial. In particular, there was a note that the defense never got, and so the jury didn't know about, that in the view of the defense and the Tennessee Supreme Court um, affected whether the trial was fair, because this note was from a key witness, someone named Andrew Hammack, and it undermined his credibility. Um, it said that he was rolling on ecstasy the night of the murder that he was testifying about. Um, and it had a couple other details in it that just called his alibi into question. Right. So there's a big dispute about this evidence not being disclosed. And there's no proof that the prosecutors withheld it intentionally. Right. Um, and that's very typical in these cases. It's really hard to have direct evidence that they withheld it. Um, but there was an, uh, a reversal of Nora's conviction, partly on the basis of the evidence being withheld, and also an ethics complaint, and actually like a whole trial of one of the prosecutors in the case, right. not Amy Wyrick, of the assistant prosecutor, Stephen Jones. So all of that was just like very rich material that I was interested in. Yeah, it, there's a lot going on. And and so what you're talking about in terms of this note that was not disclosed is, is of course, the Brady rule. You and I are familiar with it uh, from our legal training, but it does require prosecutors to turn over any evidence that could be helpful to the defense. And you describe it this way in the in the article. And I think this is a really, really uh, great ex, uh, explanation. You say it's as if the prosecutors are tennis players calling their own lines when their opponents and even the referee can't see the other side of the court. That's just a fantastic analogy. So talk about the Brady rule maybe a little more broadly and the balance that, uh, that it attempts to strike between what is a pretty high burden of proof for the government and then the accused right to a fair trial. Yeah, I found this to be such a fascinating thing to research. So the Brady rule, let's just like back up a second, if that's okay, sure. and give a little historical context. So the Brady rule comes from the Supreme Court in 1963. And before the court rules, in the United States, people who are accused of a crime basically have no constitutional right to see the evidence against them ahead of time. And that was because of this idea of trial by ambush, that the element of surprise was actually useful in figuring out what the truth was. That's an idea that goes all the way back to 16th century Britain, which is like the origin of our rules. By the 20th century in Britain and in Europe, the courts had gotten very far away from this idea and they much more had a sense, we want everyone to know what the proof is before trial so that we can probe it and test it effectively. But in the United States, there just wasn't that kind of um, right for defendants. So then in 1963, 
this guy named John Leo Brady comes to the Supreme Court and he's been convicted of murder and he's facing the death penalty. And he says that he should get a new trial because at his trial, the prosecution never told his lawyers and never told the jury that his co-defendant had confessed to the murder that he was convicted of. So the Supreme Court actually doesn't reverse John Lee Brady, John Leo Brady's um, conviction. But the court does say that if um, the prosecution has evidence before trial that is either material or favorable to the defense, they have a legal obligation to turn it over. And so this is a really important fundamental legal rule called the Brady Rule that has spawned this whole set of um, doctrine and cases about when you're supposed to disclose evidence, what's material, what's favorable, all of this, all these issues have been litigated endlessly, really, since Brady. But what the Supreme Court was trying to do in Brady and what actually happened, I think, are quite different. Um, I think the Supreme Court imagined it was really balancing the scales between the prosecution and the defense by making sure that defendants had access to evidence that could help them prove their innocence. And if you think about this, it's has to do with the power of the state, right? right. The, the state has the police and the police go to the crime scene. They talk to the witnesses first. They send stuff to the crime lab and get the results back. And all of that kind of investigative might is on the side of the prosecution. Defendants really can't do a lot of that, those tasks for themselves. And I think that's why um, it's so important that we have this Brady rule, but it's an honor system. And yeah. that's what I was trying to get at with my um, tennis analogy. The prosecution knows what it has. It yeah. knows what the cops um, have gathered, at least hopefully it knows from <laughs> the police. And if it doesn't, um, they, they... that's a separate problem. Sometimes the police don't even tell the prosecutors. But let's assume the prosecutors have all the evidence. They know what they're deciding to withhold if they don't turn everything over. They know about the judgments they're making under Brady about what's favorable and material. And the defense has no idea. And the judge doesn't know. So that's that's why that tennis analogy, yeah. I hope, is apt. And, it, and it's also important that, that even if the prosecutor doesn't know and the police do, that's imputed a lot of times. That, that... Yeah. And what you mean by that um, is that... <laughs> yeah. From the point of view of do you get a new trial if your Brady rights were violated, if it turns out that the government had evidence that would um, help you prove your innocence and the police had it and the prosecutors didn't have it, that still counts as the government having right. it. And right. so you still you're, you're, you could still, in theory get a new trial. Yeah. So I feel like we just taught most of a law school class. and you know, <laughs> At least the Brady uh, yeah. session of a yeah. class. And so you also cite in, in the article, uh, a, actually a rather old now, um, study from Columbia Law School that looked through some 2,700 um, death sentences and found that of the ones overturned, of the death sentences that were overturned, nearly 20% involved this type of, of misconduct. And then you go on to uh, quote Judge Kaczynski of the Ninth Circuit, who says we have an epidemic, he used the word epidemic, of prosecutors withholding evidence. So you've researched this case and, and this issue quite a bit. You've reported on it for several years, and I'm assuming you agree or you wouldn't have included the quote. But, um, you know, what factors contribute to this frequency other than what you've just talked about? And in particular, let's let's bring it to Shelby County. What are what did you see and experience in your reporting in, in Shelby County's district attorney's office that has led to this, quote unquote, ec epidemic? Well, I want to make clear, I'm not saying I think there's necessarily an epidemic in Shelby County. That's like a very 
broad claim, but I do think there is a pattern. Um, And it's, uh, you know, some ways with this whole question of like, how frequent is this? And is it too frequent? It depends on what your tolerance is for frequency. (laughs) Um, So I don't think it's easy to say how much is too much. I think if you're someone who worries about innocent people potentially getting convicted or just about seriously protecting the rights of defendants, then you don't want to tolerate very much of this at all. Um, and I think the, the question I had about Shelby County based on my reporting is whether um, this is happening in a way that is not really being addressed effectively. Um, so that was the sort of question that I came into yeah. the piece with. What to do about it once it's it's established. And so um, not an epidemic, but a, but a pattern. And uh, you also cite a, a report from uh, the Fair Sentencing Project at Harvard that listed Wyrick and her office as, as one of the more egregious offenders. And so is, is that a fair assessment? Well, uh, the, what the Fair Punishment Project found, they looked at um, – a few different states, and they did comparisons within the states. So they compared the Shelby County District Attorney's Office between 2010 and 2015 to all the other DA's offices in Tennessee. And they found that Shelby County ranked high for um, the kind of overall number of allegations. And then if you they did a per capita measure as well. And now we're talking about allegations of prosecutorial misconduct, which can include other things like making improper statements to the jury. Um, it's not just failure to disclose evidence. Um, but yes, that was their finding. Yeah. And, and you, you also write, increasingly the quality of justice a person receives depends on the place in which he or she is accused of a crime, which is a really bold and strong statement. Uh, and I, and I, I think it's accurate. But do you see regional patterns? I mean, you've looked at this i mean is the south worse you you know that would be the obviously the the sort of logical assumption for me at least living in the south but is that true are there patterns in in regions of this tolerance that you're talking about i'm not going to paint with such a broad brush and say that the whole south is worse i don't think that's fair i think there are parts of the south that are problematic i also think there are other parts of the country that are problematic you know so for example the fair punishment project also singled out the district attorney's office in orange county california um so you know you have uh people in different parts of the country who um are getting criticized for this and you know i also should say um that I've been, I interviewed Amy Weirich and I've been in touch with her office and she adamantly denies all these allegations. She um, sees her office as ethical and as doing its very best to comply with Brady. Um, So I just want to put that out there as her response. Of course. And you you also talked to some former uh, prosecutors from that office who said some, some things about the culture in that office. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this was really striking. These were folks, a bunch of folks who'd worked in the office, some for a number of years and some had left very recently. And they said that there was a real sort of winner take all mentality in the office. And one example that one of them gave me that I thought was really telling was that at one point he decided to dismiss um, multiple murder charges in one year because he just didn't think there was enough evidence to Um, to prosecute the case. And if you're a prosecutor and you think there's insufficient evidence, that's like the ethical, that's your, you're just doing your duty. But that was not something he felt like was appreciated or helped him professionally. He felt like it actually kind of hurt him that he wasn't willing to go forward with these cases. And, you know, this is tricky. We're talking now about organizational culture, which has a lot of subtlety and nuance to it. Um, 
But one of the things that people who study organizations say is that the reward structure you set up matters a lot for the signals you send about how people are supposed to make decisions. And so if you're in an office where like people get really excited when you win a big trial or get a really long sentence, but if you dismiss some cases because you think that's the right thing to do, they kind of look askance at you. That's going to affect how the office operates. Yeah, and this office notoriously has the Hammer Award that you reference, and that is a an award that they would give for those convictions and those lengthy sentences, right? Right, and that's an old tradition dating back. Um, Amy Warrick says that she doesn't know of that award being given out in the last few years. Um, I'm not sure that that's correct, but I want to put her... Um, her uh, response to that out there. Um, But, you know, in general, when people, again, who study prosecutors' offices see things like a hammer award or, you know, a big party for people when they get a death penalty verdict, then you start to see the office, you know, tilting in that direction. Yeah. And she's consistently been on record with you, I'm sure, and with with other uh, people who've asked her uh, to explain these uh, these uh, cases of misconduct that 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 it's human error. She she uses the term human error to explain this in in, in many many cases. And of course, prosecutors like judges and defense attorneys make mistakes. Um, but why isn't this enough? What should what should a, a DA's office with a a pattern uh, and with several of these cases, high profile cases in the last few years, what should they be doing uh, instead of chalking well, it up to human error? Right. I mean, and you're absolutely right. She does say all of this. She says these are mistakes, that everybody makes mistakes, including prosecutors, and that in most cases, nobody uh, accuses prosecutors in her office of making mistakes. One thing that was helpful for me in thinking about the answer to your question, what should people do? I interviewed Lucian Perra, who is a lawyer in Memphis who represents people who are charged with ethics violations and is like an expert on legal ethics. And he was saying that When you have an allegation of misconduct, um, and he was talking in particular now about an allegation um, that a prosecutor who's retired from the office, um, Tom Henderson, who was a high up guy, um, there was a a finding by a judge that he had purposefully withheld evidence, which is unusual to have a judge say that he is sure that this happened on purpose. And after that finding, Henderson received a public censure from the Tennessee Board of Professional Responsibility. And at this point, Amy Weirich was his boss, and she didn't take any action against him. So he remained in this supervisory position um, in the office, uh, and there were just no professional consequences for him within the office. And she said that he basically already suffered enough and that she um, thought he just made a mistake. And what Lucian Perez said to me was that when you have an allegation that, that that is that serious, it's important to do an internal investigation. And I think, again, we're talking about organizational culture and the message it sends. If you keep someone in a high up position who's had a finding of having purposefully uh, withheld evidence by a judge, you know, according to people like Lucian Perra and other experts I talked to, you want to look really closely at that and think about the message you're saying to the up and coming lawyers. Yeah, did you um, you got some really good insight into that office and really into our community uh, in your reporting. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything um, and you include a lot of it in the in the article, but is there anything you learned about the office that maybe was noteworthy that you didn't get to include in the piece? 
That's a great question. I mean, I'm really grateful. I've been to Memphis a number of times reporting this piece. I feel like I've talked to so many people and people were incredibly helpful to me and I'm really grateful, people all over the legal system. I guess I would say this, and it's certainly not just Memphis, but in a lot of places, the criminal justice system mostly affects poor people, mm -hmm. often is heavily um often defendants are heavily minority. Minority people are overrepresented and the people who are actually like being directly impacted, the people who are on the benches facing charges day after day. And I think that makes it all too easy for people who are not low income and not minority to kind of look the other way and not think that hard about what is actually happening in our criminal justice system every day. And I really think that if we the rest of us spent time, we would realize that this is just a system for processing people in which there are just like kind of so many indignities and kind of intolerable inequality going on within it. Um, and again, I'm not just talking about Memphis. I mean, this is a much wider problem. Uh, but I think it's a very real problem. And one thing to maybe leave you with is the, a comparison between criminal and civil court. You know, when people sue each other, they tend to be people of some means. And those trials, forget about the trials, those cases long before trial proceed with much more access to evidence on both sides, with just much more, um, I would say, just like dignity than I see in criminal court in a lot of cities where I report. And that's just very striking to me that when property is at stake, right. we seem to be quite worried about people's rights. And when liberty is at stake, we are perhaps less concerned. That just gets it exactly backwards. Right. I, I say that a lot. And you beat me to the punch. I had really one more question. I think we've explored this a lot, but I, I really do want people who listen to the permanent record to to read this. It's a fascinating uh, and, and I think unique insight into this Nora Jackson case that we've all heard so much about. So I'll just ask you one more question quickly. What do you want us, Memphians in particular, to take from this article? Why did you write it? And what should we look for and take from it uh, as, as residents of Shelby County? I would love for people to think about how important prosecutors are um, in the criminal justice system, how much power they have. In almost every state, including your state, they are elected. So these are people who answer to us. And in a sense, we are implicated in whatever they do or don't do. And the other thing I just want to add about Nora Jackson is, um, and maybe your listeners know about this too, but she um, took an Alfred plea to manslaughter a couple of years ago. And that means that she said that she admits that the prosecutors could have enough evidence to convict her, but she maintains her innocence. Um, she got out of prison. And recently, the Innocence Project has decided to represent her. They want to see if new developments in DNA technology might allow for a retesting of the evidence in a way that they think might um, use, be able to use DNA to identify um, the person or the people who killed her mother. So that's a development to look out for. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Emily, for taking the time from your busy schedule to talk to us a little bit uh, today about your piece in the New York Times Magazine. Thanks a lot. It's totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Emily Bazelon in conversation and on the permanent record. Our thanks to Emily for joining us to talk about her article in the New York Times Magazine this week entitled Guilt by Omission. 
You can find that at NewYorkTimes.com. You can find it linked from Just City's Facebook page and from our Twitter account. Emily Bazelon also has a best-selling book called Sticks and Stones, Defeating the Culture of Bullying and Rediscovering the Power of Character and Empathy. Look for it where you get your books. Also, Emily's a co-host of Slate's Political Gap Fest. I'm a longtime listener. It's a weekly podcast on the Panoply Podcast Network. Check it out, too. As usual, thanks to Gil Worth and the best podcast network, the OAM Network, for providing first-class podcast support. Check them out at theoamnetwork.com. There are plenty of shows there. You can also find old episodes of The Permanent Record. Special thanks to Jeff Hewlett for She Got Gone, original theme music for The Permanent Record. His duo, me and Leah, have a new record out. Find it on SoundCloud and Spotify and look for them live wherever you watch your live music. I'm Josh Spickler. This is The Permanent Record, a production of Just City. Learn more about our work at justcity.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure you're subscribing to The Permanent Record on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating. Leave us a review. It helps us build our audience. In a Just City, we listen and we speak up. Our thanks to you for doing both.